chipped in. Uh, I forgot. Uh, that was the relationship that I observed very closely between my father and his father. They were always working together and physically working together. And it was very harmonious. And uh, that, that was not available to me in any way. And now I have this wonderful opportunity to be uh, practicing here with, with Gimpo. Uh, I can say this freely, he's not here tonight. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's an opportunity that is, I, every now and then I, you know, it's like I, I turn around inside me and look at this and just think how fortunate I am for fathers and son, fathers and daughters, mothers and son, mothers and daughters, when they can have that kind of uh, intimate relationship, it's just so precious. And I know that many of you have that with your children and you probably had that with your parents, but that's why, you know, I mean, I think that's what that parable is, is really getting at. That's the, that's what it's coming from. And the, you know, and the, the attitude that's projected through the, through the whole Sutra is that that's, that's the relationship that, uh, that's being, uh, analogized uh, as a relationship between the Buddha and practitioners uh, <clears throat> who are all being assured of the fact that they're going to be Buddhas. And this comes up in, uh, in one of the parables we'll talk about tonight as well. Uh, and, I, and I also feel somewhat obligated to note that uh, there's no model of mothers and daughters in this sutra, or and there's no model of fathers and daughters in this sutra. And that seems to me something that is uh, painfully absent, at least painful in the context of the way we look at the world. Uh, but that's the thing, we have to make our own, we have to make our own analogies, our own parables. We have to uh, be the Dharma through our own eyes, not just as received wisdom that uh, has to be swallowed whole. Mm -hmm. It has to be chewed on, digested, and turned into uh, something that will nourish us. Other I just say that uh, I think practice just deepens my appreciation for those relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, despite uh, or in in the can I say in the uh, well, despite years of psychotherapy, uh, practice has just deepened the appreciation for all that was 
given to me, all that was given to us by our parents. Uh, and it's, you know, I often imagine that we are at the, we are at the nexus of, of multiple streams, but two particular streams. We have the, you know, our parental stream uh, that throws, that flows to our grandparents and our parents, and that leads to us. And it converges with our Dharma stream of all the Buddhas and ancestors down to uh, Suzuki Roshi and then Sojin Roshi that, that leads to us. And we, we stand at that convergence. And so that's a new, that's a new place. It's a new territory uh, that, that each of us arrives at. And, uh, you know, I often, uh, I've often fantasized what, what would the conversation that my grandfather and Suzuki Roshi have had, you know, how wonderful that would be to, to stand on the sideline and, and, and hear them converse. Wow. Other thoughts or questions? Well, one of the things I came across this week uh, that I wanted to share with you is something uh, in a uh, an article in Lion in Lion's Roar uh, that was written by uh, Donald Lopez, uh, who who wrote one of the books I'm looking at. Uh, I think it's two Buddhas seated side by side. He was the co-author of that. Um, and it comes up in, in, it's come up in, in some of the other parables, but it comes up constantly. What he says is woven throughout the sutra are what might be called strategies of legitimation. The Buddha recounts numerous stories from the far distant past before events that are described in, in the text that, that he's speaking from. These accounts describe the Lotus Sutra being taught long ago in distant universes with, uh, with an ancient audience, including the Buddha in life's past, uh, and who now appears present in the Lotus Sutra. Uh, so uh, Lopez writes, if the Lotus Sutra was taught long ago, it cannot be a modern innovation, something that, that, something that Buddhism has traditionally condemned. So in other words, it, what he's saying, what Lopez is saying is that uh, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, they were, there was a kind of, even though it was constantly being innovated, there was a kind of inborn conservatism and reluctance to, uh, to admit or own up to innovation. So there was a constant attempt, and you see it very much in the Lotus Sutra, to uh, legitimate it by describing how it was taught in the past. Uh, also found throughout the sutra are various 
prophecies and glories that await the devotees of the Lotus Sutra, even if that devotion takes such simple forms as reciting a single verse of the sutra, offering flowers to, to the text or joining one's hands in a bow. Um, one of the other things that, uh, that you see in several of the parables, uh, because what we understand from our perspective is that, and we'll see this again in the parables we're talking about tonight, that there is kind of, there certainly is a valorization of the, of the one vehicle, the Mahayana, and uh, a, a kind of a critique of the uh, Shavaka and Pacheka Buddha uh, paths, which we, which we understand as uh, nowadays we might call that Hinayana, the lesser vehicle. Um, and we will see that uh, the Buddha puts forward these uh, one vehicle, uh, is one vehicle teachings and you know the question naturally arises like, uh, why didn't you teach us this before? Why are you just telling us this now? And uh, you know, were you lying? Were you deceiving us? Uh, and uh, it happened several times, and I think it happens in the, one of the chapters we're reading tonight that the Buddha says, "No, I wasn't lying." you should understand this in the context of skillful means. So um, this, is, this is part of the kind of methodology of the Lotus Sutra is to, is to kind of establish its, its credentials based on it being taught uh, again and again throughout the past. Uh, and also uh, evolving this case for skillful means. So um, I found that uh, I found that interesting. And I just wonder if, uh, well, I wonder two things. One is what you make of this kind of uh, quasi open critique of uh, early Buddhism. And what it feels like to you. Somebody asked me this question, I think, today in uh, Yokosan. Uh, and uh, I just wonder how you hold that and uh, what it feels like to you to, to listen to it and to ponder it in light of, uh, of this teaching. So any, any thoughts there? Sue. Uh, thank you. Um, it feels uncomfortable to me, a little um, patronizing. Um, and what I started thinking about as you spoke um, was when I was in um, early childhood education, getting my master's and hearing about Piaget. Someone like that said, you can teach anything to any age appropriately. Mm -hmm. Not sure how that works, but 
I know that presenting life and death um, and the circle of life to preschoolers was sort of obvious and they got it when we buried the goldfish in the um, under the dirt in a little pot with some seeds. And one of the uh, mom said, I, she said, this is going to sound really weird. A week later, she said, I'm so grateful your goldfish died. She said, my father died. And we took the children to the funeral, wondering how they could even be there with us, but they needed to be. And one of them asked, are you going to bury grandpa under a tree. And it was perfect. Mm. Mm. So um, I, think, um, I understand skillful means, but it, this method or these parables are not feeling respectful to me. Mm -hmm. You've got some place to go and you haven't made it yet. That's really the main message. Good, thank you. Anyone else? Um, Jonathan? As I, as I think I mentioned in the first class, it just feels really dissonant to me. There's, you know, this simultaneous message that, oh, there's just one vehicle. Um, but in that one vehicle, the Mahayana is the best. Um, and it, Yeah, it's weird. Okay. Um, just this, this dissonance, this, this contradiction between, you know, there's one vehicle and, and all paths are, are, are valid ways to, to reach this one vehicle, but also the Mahayana is the best. Um, it, it just feels like two, two different messages pulling against each other. And I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with that. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, and I, I love the Lotus Sutra. I think it's, it's, it's kind of fun, but, um, but this is an aspect of it that I've always just struggled with. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with it. Well, I think, um, I, I mean, I understand that. And I think what I came to in reflecting the conversation that I had this afternoon is that I'm aware and have experienced uh, different practice traditions so-called Mahayana and the so-called so-called not Hinayana but so-called Theravada and in in one of these 
one of the parables today, uh, I think it, it talks about uh, in the Shravaka vehicle, uh, one, what one hears is the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. And the Mahayana uh, vehicle, uh, you hear basically the Bodhisattva vows and the Paramitas, which are the practices, the fundamental practices of Bodhisattvas. But I think from my own vantage point, um, I think that the vantage point that we have is the vantage point of the one vehicle. So when I look at, you know, when I've been to Thailand or been to Sri Lanka or Burma, and I see people, or even actually this morning, I went down the block to the Thai temple because we're borrowing tables for, for our, we always borrow tables and chairs from them, you know, and these monks, they are practicing. They're practicing devotedly. And it's like, I just, I see that. I don't see that through, a, through a, a, an idea that evaluates or discriminates. I see that as all the Buddha's way. And I think this is one of the things that one, uh, you can look at it, you can look at the Lotus Sutra with a kind of critical mind which is, which is uh, what scholars and intellectuals might do, but you can also look at it with your Buddha eye. And from the standpoint of the Buddha eye, if you're looking at things uh, from that Buddha perspective, then you're seeing the whole Dharma in every tradition. And you know, if that's, if there's some ambiguity about that, or, you know, if there's some message that's, that's uncomfortable, uh, you know, I might think about it a little, but I don't feel obligated to, to buy into that kind of discrimination, if that makes sense. So in other words, as we're, our practice, I should allow us to see the Dharma in whatever practice we encounter. In fact, to see the Dharma even in other religions and to honor that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I, I, again, I, I can't say that it, it turns me off from the Lotus Sutra as a whole. It's just there. there is this triumphalism that runs through it and it does appear to contradict some of the sutras other messages well yeah and in some way that's uh that's really useful that's very zen you know it's like oh we have to live with contradiction <laughs> we have to live with something that appears to be saying uh, two things at once and doesn't sit so care so comfortably with us, uh, and to build. To I think the the part of the thrust of our practice 
is to build our capacity to hold that ambiguity and to hold those apparent contradictions. You know, that's, that's, and I, I know that, that I can see it in myself and I see it in a lot of, a lot of other, a lot of you, you know, that your, your one's growing capacity to hold that while not losing sight of, uh, of a goal of awakening. It's like very fortunate. Uh, just anything else before we sort of turn to these, to the parables tonight? Um, Pauline. Hey, I'll just uh, very briefly, I guess I'll throw out that, um, you know, you mentioned this sort of repudiation of, of earlier Buddhism or, and uh, what, I, what I think about a lot reading these is, is the Heart Sutra, which is also in, you know, in some sense, a negation of a lot of canonical early Buddhism. I mean, you know, a lot of what those verses are just, you know, kind of laying out like, you know, what's in the Pali Canon and saying none of that is real. Um, and so, so, you know, I ask myself, well, why, why does the heart sutra sit better with me than these parables often do? Why am I more comfortable dwelling there? And I, I think it is because it's not, you know, as obviously setting up a, a clear positive picture against the negation. It's just, it's just leaving you with that, that, that dwelling in, um, doubts and uncertainties. Uh, and, and so I, I guess, you know, the, Maybe the way I sort of read that back into these parables is that the the idea of you know our our hotship or, or sort of the the early you know idea of extinction is is shown to be false and illusory. But then this like figure who's behind it, this like Buddha who's a who's a father or, or a traveler guide or a rich man or whatever you know, and is kind of engineering the whole thing behind the scenes. Uh, he's he's not the end point either, at least not for me, you know. Um, He's another another figure, but 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 I don't think one stops there. No, I, I agree. All of these, you know, everyone, well, every teaching is medicine, right? Every teaching is designed to establish some new ground of balance. Uh, and that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that like every teaching has some polemical aspect to it. It's making an argument. Um, and some of it we don't even see. The whole, the whole of Buddhism, you know, it's like we never talk about, we, talk, we can talk about Hinayana, Mahayana, or Shravaka, Pracheka Buddha, and Bodhisattva, but uh, I don't ever remember a discussion in any Buddhist center that I've been to that talks about the dialectic between, say, Brahmanism and Buddhism. And, you know, that's, that's kind of a, that's a really big context for what was being put forward in uh, 
from all of these ways. And, you know, so we can, you know, we can dwell on these tensions and they're, they're interesting. They're, they're pretty intellectually juicy. Uh, but I don't think they're, the, they're not the main thing for us. The main thing is actually how we practice and create, create a space of harmonization around ourselves, around our communities, and in, in the world. Uh, and I think uh, I would I would apply, you know, in a conversation in conversations that uh, Lori and I have had over the years. Uh, about schools and just to say we have to rely on our internal discernment which the Buddha advised us in in the Kalama Sutta one of the early Pali Suttas he he said you know don't take something because as true because you read it in a book or you heard a teacher see, say it, or you know, uh, this community says it, uh, you need to be able to decide for yourself if that teaching leads to, leads in a wholesome direction and wholesome in that, in the context of that sutra means, does it lead towards connection? Does it lead towards wholeness and happiness? And I think that that's what what Lori and I what we sort of articulate for ourselves is uh, we're a teacher, we're a person, we're a practice. Is seems wise and evolved. I'll follow it. So where I see wisdom in the Lotus Sutra, I'll follow it. Where it doesn't seem that way, then. I'll set it aside. I won't follow it. But I think it behooves us to, to keep an open mind and recognize that our understanding may not be complete. And we may, as we continue to explore, we may see the wisdom in what didn't appear wise in the past. But meanwhile, if it doesn't seem right, don't go there. So I want I want to read about this the magical city. Uh, and there's a, it's an interesting setup to it. Let me just. So this is chapter seven. And so it begins with a, there's a long preface uh, where the Buddha, and this is part of this sort of, uh, this kind of attempt at legitimization. The Buddha tells a story about a past Buddha who reached awakening after eons of sitting under the Bodhi tree. Uh, you know, he lifetime after lifetime and he didn't become a Buddha, uh, but he was very patient and perseverant and uh, he continued under the tree. Uh, and 
he became Buddha called the universal surpassing wisdom, wisdom Tathagata. And, but then you keep the, the time frame of this, of within the Lotus Sutra, there's a constantly shifting time frame. And in this case, uh, before he became a Buddha, before he became a Bodhisattva sitting under the tree, in an earlier lifetime, uh, he had been a prince and was the father of 16 sons. Uh, so, somehow these sons all took up the practice. They all became bodhisattvas. And again, this is still in the distance past. Uh, they requested that he teach them the Lotus Sutra. And he did that for 100,000 eons. And is, you know, technically there's some designation of how many thousands of years is an eon. But anyway, it's a really long time. Uh, and the Buddha then says that all of these 16 sons became Buddhas and that he is one of them. That the Buddha who's speaking or Shakyamuni Buddha is one of the 16 sons of this prince who became a Buddha, who taught his sons, who became bodhisattvas and became Buddhas. Uh, and then he teaches this parable. Uh, so the parable, the parable talks about uh, another land and another time uh, and in a place far from human habitation and beset with dangerous wild beasts. There's a long perilous road uh, leading to a place of great treasure. And a whole large group of people are being guided down this road, uh, making an effort to reach this treasure. Uh, and the leader of the band is a is wise and compassionate, and he knows the road. You know, he's a, he's a skilled guide, and so he knows the road and he knows the destination where it is. So, after walking and walking and walking, uh, all the members of this this group become very tired and they really uh, lose their energy and their determination. Uh, and they go to this guy, this leader, and uh, they do whatever they can to, to urge him to, to turn around and go back. Because uh, they just feel they can't go any further. Uh, 
and the leader knows that if you can just get them to hold on a little longer, they will reach the goal and uh, arrive at this place of treasure. Uh, uh, but they want to give up. So in that moment, out of his powers, he creates a magical city. And it's, you know, it's about three quarters of the way to the treasure. But he creates it, it's right ahead of where they are at the moment. And he tells them, uh, it's okay. They don't need to turn back uh, because they can all, uh, they can all get to this magical city, which is beautiful and a place of ease and they can rest securely. So they enter the phantom city and they're really happy and they make themselves very comfortable. And when the guide sees that they're all at ease, they regain their strength and their, their spirit uh, and they're refreshed, he makes the city disappear. Um, and he says, okay, let's go on because the treasure is really close. We can get to it from here. And he says that the, the city that they were resting in was just, it was just a magical device to give them a break so that they could restore their spirits. So thus refreshed and, and newly encouraged, they press on. And uh, the chapter ends with basically with this story told in, in verse. So, you know, you can read, you can probably draw out the analogies yourself. Uh, you know, this long hard road is the journey of our lives. Uh, and on this journey, we encounter all kinds of hardship and pain and we strive to overcome them, but you know, rarely do we get everything that we want. And in the ordinary course of things, uh, many people give up. We've seen them, you know, we see them around us and we can understand, uh, we can understand them giving up, it's painful to see. And perhaps some of us have come to that point ourselves. Uh, so in one of the commentaries I got, it says, many good people have fallen into defeatist ways of thinking. However much they struggle, they get nowhere. Uh, so the best course in one way or another is to slip out of difficulties and get what pleasures they can in life. In short, they give up the effort to progress and escape into an easy attitude towards life. On the other hand, uh, there are people of little moral uneasiness 
people who readily fall into evil ways as they seek whatever they do to take the short way with little thought for the consequences. Uh, so this is not the life of practice that we're cultivating. Uh, so he offers a way that seems to promise, at least it promises peace in a in an immediate sense. Uh, and I think this is, this is interesting. It's an interesting conundrum for a practice uh, because I think many of us come to practice uh, because, because of the suffering we experience and we just want it, we want it to cease and we'll settle for a kind of attenuation of that pain and that suffering. And, you know, the practice, the practice can offer that. But the practice, I mean, I think this is one of the strengths of the Lotus Sutra the practice offers something much deeper than that. You know, it's not just offering a place of rest, it's offering a way that, that you know, a way to Buddhahood, which means in the context of, of this sutra, uh, to share the opportunity of ease with all beings. So it includes, as I think I was talking about last, last Saturday, uh, Buddhahood includes a sense of responsibility. And so the goal is not just to be at ease. And as we'll see, uh, in the in the next uh, chapters in the next section of the Lotus Sutra uh, the goal is not just an end to suffering an end to rebirth uh, something nirvana it's not nirvana that means extinction It's nirvana that, as we go on in the sutra, that uh, in con contrary to what we've, much of what we've learned, uh, it's a kind of eternalism, which is challenging. We have to readjust our minds to that. Uh, so when the, when the guide causes the city to vanish, uh, he's urging them on to the ultimate ideal that human life offers. Uh, and at first they're very surprised, 
but then they embrace it and they take on that journey. So I, I really like this, the, the commentary I'm reading is by um, uh, Niwano. Uh, and uh, who is like the founder of this relatively recent Nichiren Risho Kosekai, uh, which they have the Lotus Sutra as kind of their core text. He says, human life in the true sense means creative and harmonious living. We are instructed to go beyond appearances if we would escape human suffering and reach a state of peaceful peacefulness of mind. But this state is only a stage on the way to enlightenment. <clears throat> For though as practitioners of the way of the Buddha, we may deliver ourselves from suffering, great numbers of people in the world remain trapped in suffering. <clears throat> to pass these people by and reach a realm of ease for ourselves alone is again a kind of escape, an arrogant selfishness. This is in no sense enlightenment. To strive in the midst of suffering humanity for the well-being of all is to live a truly human life. Thus, we must do away with any feeling of temporary ease and contentment, leave the phantom city, and set out again upon a road of new toll. Toil, toil. <coughs> and at, towards the end of the sutra, we have these four lines that um, we're quite familiar with because we use this at, at the end of almost all of our uh, services and, or a version of this it says, <clears throat> may this merit extend to all that we with all the living may accomplish the Buddha way, that we will get there together, that we're all in this together and we're seeking enlightenment together. So I'm going to, let me stop here for a moment and uh, see if you have any thoughts about the magical city. Questions or comments? Um, yeah, Jim. I found this this particular parable interesting because the travelers were looking for the jewels all along. They weren't looking for the city. It's as if they forgot when they got to the city and when they when they got scared. Um, and then they were reminded that they were looking for the jewels and they continued. So it's not as if it was a add-on or a bonus, but in, in some ways it was really their original intent. It was the original intent, but you know, one wonders what they would have thought if the guide hadn't made the city disappear. That's kind of, you know, it's like, and like maybe we should do a, like if we could have a, like a control study, you know, okay, who's gonna go, okay, you can have, you know, I'm gonna take away the city, 
on what and the control is on the leave a city and see who wants to go on to the to the uh to the real treasure it's like no you know it's pretty good here maybe i'll stay here one can imagine that i, th I think one of the things that i like about the sutra is that i is precisely the kind of these contradictions that are built into the to the stories. Uh, they they kind of stretch your thinking. Any other thoughts? Everybody's very talkative tonight. Sue? Um, hmm. I wonder, um, I'm finding this, that this is breaking up a whole lot. And I don't know whether it's my computer or if anyone else is having that, but it's gone on the whole time. Oh, no, I'm, I'm in the right channel here. Is it, you mean my signal is breaking up? Well, this is what I'm watching. So I don't know if, if nobody else is having a problem, then it's my problem. Is anyone else having a problem? Okay. Okay. Um, then my other thought is, isn't this story that we're hearing, isn't this the standard uh, fairy tale story, the quest story? I think it is. I do think it's an archetypal quest story. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that that a lot of these a lot of these parables are, you know, they're familiar to us in in a range of contexts, right? Maybe I mean, there's something archetypal about them, human sort of. Yeah. Um, Transcultural. And as, as I said, I think in the first class, it's, it's very possible at the time of its composition, there was already a, uh, a transcultural, uh, there was transcultural commerce and communication uh, throughout uh, uh, that part of North 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 Asia, India, you know, in, in trade routes. So, you know, the first, the earliest extant Buddhist texts that have been found so far, uh, which date from about the beginning of the common era, uh, a little before, were found in Afghanistan. Uh, and they were found on, you know, they were, they were found in uh, trade routes 
along trade routes. So uh, I think we, I think it, it's fairly safe to say that there were transcultural elements that were appearing in in all of these uh, in the sutras and texts of a range of religions that were uh, evolving at that time, mm. which is wonderful. Uh, and it also, uh, I like it because, you know, you can hear your echoes and resonances uh, that uh, are very rich and not pure. We try, you know, we have a, we have a penchant for believing that, you know, in, in wanting to wanting something to be pure, but none of this is pure in that sense. Well, let me go on to the second parable, if that's okay. So the second parable is rather short. Give me a second here. So this is um, from chapter eight. And it's a couple of things, a couple of interesting things happen uh, at the beginning of this chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, the Buddha gives yet another prediction of uh, future Buddhahood to one of to one of his disciples. I'm sorry, I'm waving papers in front of you. It's very rude. Uh, and so it's the assurance that's given to his disciple Purna and other close disciples that they will attain Buddhahood. And again, the story is told of uh, Purna's distant past and past lives of the kind of accumulation of merit and of his attaining a bodhisattva status. Uh, and when the Buddha assures Purna of his Buddhahood, uh, there are 1,200 arhats in the assembly. They stand silently wishing to be assured in the same way. And the Buddha reads their minds and proceeds to name uh, uh, Ajnata Kondanaya, who in the future will also become a Buddha, who will be called the universal light Tathagata. And also at this point, it's interesting, in chapter two, if you remember, I talked about this a little, in chapter two at one point, when, when Shariputra was assured of Buddhahood, 5,000 arhats got up and walked away. Uh, and in this chapter, uh, these arhats who had walked out confess here that they come back. They were actually, they confess, you know, we were ignorant. We really didn't get this. And we were attached to 
inferior nirvana. Uh, but now they are thrilled to be uh, promised Buddhahood. So they're happy. Uh, and then you have the parable. Um, So this parable is taught, is taught by uh, Kondanaya, who is uh, Kondinya, who is one of the chief disciples. And uh, after the Buddhas, after the after the Arhats uh, uh, criticized themselves for their pride and their arrogance. Uh, he tells this he tells this parable which is the parable of the gem and the rope so a certain poor man uh went to visit his good friend and the friend entertained him with food and wine and uh this poor man got drunk and fell asleep and his friend was called away on business but he didn't want to wake up the poor man, uh, but he didn't want to leave him poor. So he thought that what he might do is sew a precious gem into uh, his friend's robe that he would discover when he woke up. Um, so the poor man wakes up later and finds his friend gone uh, and he leaves and he resumes his terrible life wandering about uh, just never having enough food his clothes being ragged uh, and you know he was grateful for whatever small amounts of food and shelter were given him, um, he was he's grateful for that. A long time passed. And one day, the poor man met his rich old friend on the road, on the road. And the friend saw the poor man's pitiful condition and was surprised. And he said, this is great. how could you be so stupid? Look at yourself. I sewed a precious stone into the lining of your clothes just so you would be able to live comfortably. Then he reached over and took the jewel from the lining of the filthy collar and said, see, sell this and buy whatever you want. Why should you be in want? So this is, this is the parable. Um, and the commentary says, you know, in this parable, uh, Kondinya is saying that the Buddha is like this good friend, I hope not, uh, when he was still a bodhisattva, uh, he told his followers that they all alike had the same Buddha nature, the priceless jewel of the parable. And that through practice, they all might gain the enlightenment of the Buddha. But their minds had been plunged in sleep and they failed to grasp the true meaning in getting rid of physical and mental desire, 
they thought that they were enlightened. Uh, but aspiration after the perfect enlightenment of Buddha uh, was not something that they wished for. Somehow they sensed there was something more and now the world honored one let them know what it was. Now they know that they themselves are bodhisattvas. Now striving for their humankind, for humankind in their practices, bodhisattvas, they knew they would become Buddhas. Um, There, um, no, it's, uh, Nick Robinson reminded me of, of a poem this week that is about this parable. Uh, it's a short poem, I'll read it to you. It was written by Philip Whalen, who was, uh, was a priest uh, in our tradition and uh, a great poet, one of the really one of the early beat poets, and one of the one of the greatest ones. So this is called the Lotus Sutra Naturalized. I got drunk at your house. You put that diamond in my shirt pocket. How am I supposed to know? Laying there in the drunk tank, strange town. Don't nobody know. Get out of jail at last, you say. You already spend that diamond? How am I going to know? I'll read it to you again. I got drunk at your house. You put that diamond in my shirt pocket. How am I supposed to know? Lying there in drunk tank. Strange town, don't nobody know. Get out of jail at last, you say. You already spend that diamond? How am I going to know? It's a wonderful poem. It hinges on the word no, which is repeated three times. And this is, of course, this is, of course, the question certainly came up for me. I'm sure it comes up for, for many of you. It's like, well, if you don't know that jewel is there, what's it worth to you? So knowing, how are we supposed to know? That's, I mean, the last word of this poem, wonderful. How am I going to know? So how are you going to know? What do you think? Susan? Uh, for me, this parable has a lot to do with, um, I think it's about confidence and faith. Like, you know, in the, in the classes that I teach, all of the, all of the students have a jewel in their pocket. They really do, but um, not everybody knows that. And it takes a great deal of effort on the part of the teacher to um, 
you know, encourage and support and inspire the students to find that. It's not something you can tell them is there or show them. It's something they discover themselves. And, um, you know, to me, the parable just fits right in with this whole theme of skillful means because students learn in different ways. And um, so I, I just relate to it as, you know, through the work that I do in that way that what works for one person doesn't work for someone else. And that, um, you know, just when you think you've got it, you've got to go deeper. And um, skillful means isn't an end. It's, it's like, okay, you've got it this time. Okay, throw it away. Now start over, you know, do it. I mean, you can never, even as a teacher, you can never use the same lesson twice and have, it, it just will not work in the same way. And so there's something really refreshing about that. If we can just, um, I think, develop our confidence and our faith in that. I don't know, am I way off? That's just the way I relate to this. I think you're, I think you're really on. And I think that's, you know, I think this is a this is a pivotal uh, moment in the sutra because it you know because we all have this jewel in our robes. That's I think that's that's the message, uh, and uh, I think it's also saying. It's pointing to you know how how unaware we are of what we have. You know, it's it resembled to my mind as I'm thinking about it now just the uh, what I was talking about last Saturday about hearing the morning dove. You know which had always been available to me. It had always been there and I didn't see or hear it. Uh, and then fortunately in some moment I came aware of it. So uh, if we had a jewel, if we were really paying attention to ourselves and to our, to our clothing or whatever, you know, I, I think that if we were really attention, paying attention we would notice there's, oh, there's, what's this little lump, you know? And we would explore and then our life would be changed. And that's what we can find with, that's, that's true of our Buddha nature. And, you know, the assurance of this whole sutra is that everybody has it. And also, I, I mean, I love the, your message, you know, it's like, well, I have to use whatever skillful means I can to help my students become aware of the jewel that they carry. You can't just show it to them, but you have to figure out how to help them unlock that for themselves, right? Yeah, thank you. Judy? 
yeah, maybe this connects to the earlier thread that was going, um, uh, which is, you know, do I enter these stories from a certain kind of premise that there's a uh, cultural framing to uh, the Lotus Sutra, so stick to the story as it's presented, or do I bring to it um, my sensibility around, you know, just like the koan collection, these stories are only as relevant as we relate to them. Um, and so uh, to me, what's coming up for me is really around the intimacy of our interrelationship. So in other words, um, the jewel doesn't necessarily have value. It's um, unless that's attributed to it. And, and that requires um, some kind of relationship. So what was coming up for me was Indra's net which is in a way you could say, I can't see myself as I imagine myself. I can only see myself as the reflection of all the other jewels. So um, that might not be what this parable, how it's presented uh, or maybe what it's pointing to, but that, that to me feels really important for this historical moment. Um, and it kind of connects to what I remember Thich Nhat Hanh talking about as um, the self is, is made up of non-self elements. So mm -hmm. what, what I value as a jewel in the pocket is only because um, I guess there's some kind of shared understanding of what's valuable. And that's such an important question right now, I think, in our time. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's 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 always an important question. It's not just in our time. It's uh, and I was having a conversation with someone about songs. You know, uh, whatever the words of a song are it doesn't necessarily mean what it does to the songwriter or the singer. You know, uh, that's a value that's, that's meaningful when we treasure the singers and the writers. But the real question is, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? You know, we look at the Lotus Sutra, it's already gone through, um, it's gone through layers of construction that we don't understand. And it's gone through several layers of translation. So there's nothing, again, there's nothing pure. Uh, what's, what's pure is our pure mind. And that's what we're trying to locate. Uh, and uh, even that is not pure in the sense that we uh, ordinarily think of purity. So, um, well, thank you. Uh, Yoni? 
The story sort of reminded me, not in, not specifically, but just uh, in like the the flavor of it of uh, stories from Helm, the like the the stories from like the shtetl where ridiculous things happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just in the like, and maybe it's just this translation, but just sewing sewing, you know, the way you choose to help someone is to sew a stone into their robe and expect them to find it it's like what a what like a shlemiel does that you know like what was he thinking (laughs) um and so for me like the the skillful means aspect of it was well how do we choose to to support our friends and and how can we expect them to use that support i don't know if you're not skillfully helping there's no way for that help to be used skillfully like yeah i don't really know how to say it but it just felt ridiculous and kind of silly and yeah well you know this is the world that we live in um you know i guess we might we would want to ask well why didn't the boat why didn't the guy just give him the jewel you know, why didn't, but why didn't the Buddha just give us enlightenment? You know, because we have to find it in order to value it. We have to find it. And that's what, what our practice, our practice is uh, in the process of self-discovery. We're discovering every self. We're discovering the connection to to everyone. And we have to find that. We have to find it the hard way. Uh, If we lived in some other, you know, Buddha field, you know, we could find it another easier way, but that's not where we live. So in order to value something, we have to discover it. But I think it, I do think it is, you know, there's a lot of resonance with those Hasidic tales and also with other, with other uh, tales, with, with Sufi tales, with, you know, uh, there's a lot of other uh, folkloric material that uh, would fit right in. We're getting down towards the end. Any other thoughts or questions? I must say there's something about this story that I really, that I love. Uh, Actually, the poem really does it for me. Uh, uh, And you know, I can see for those of you, if any of you uh, knew Philip or saw him, you know, he was, uh, he was a bit of a Zen fool and a very sharp cookie. There's not a lot that got by him, but, uh, he was, he was the, uh, I guess he was the abbot of, uh, uh, Hartford Street, and he lived there for quite a while. 
And he was also, uh, I guess he was a college pal of Gary Snyder's. So Dave? I just want to say, yeah, I, I really appreciate um, finding sort of the, the, the delight or, or the sort of nuttiness, especially of this one, that this parable is really, um, and, and I'll say that in general, I, I do think that the Lotus Sutra for me, um, it's interesting trying to sort of put into words what my, my response to the Lotus Sutra is like, the Lotus Sutra is, is a text that um, really sort of lends itself to a devotional relationship. Yeah. Like, I feel like I have a devotional relationship to the Lotus Sutra. Like, I love the Lotus Sutra, but it's interesting in the discussion, like I could hear in your questions, like, like when I try to think about the Lotus Sutra, it actually kind of comes apart. It's like a super weird text, actually. So thinking about it on some level, it, it's not the entry point that it invites, like, but this kind of delight of like, I have this really ratty sweatshirt and then I just like reach down and like a diamond fell out <laughs> and that doesn't actually make any sense. And like, which of my friends put it in here? Like that sort of feeling of the strangeness of it, um, th that actually feels really profound. So I, I just maybe wanted to name or this, this, the way the discussion turned towards the end here, name something for me of what this text does for me that when I try to think about it, um, it, it gets a little thin for me. I, I don't know, we have other texts that actually really lend themselves to thinking that I actually feel really energized by thinking about. And the Lotus Sutra is hard for me to think about, but it's really easy for me to feel delight about or, or like to wanna to do a bunch of prostrations to or something. So anyway, I, maybe that's, um, uh, just to name that aspect of like my experience of the text itself. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that's really, that's a good place to, to end what you were, what you were saying. It reminds me also of, um, what I love about the, uh, the ballad tradition of the British Isles, which is full of magic. Magic was all over it. And it's, it's very interesting because we have, we have this, we have some remnants of that tradition here in, in the Appalachians, you know, they were discovered, these old songs were discovered that have the rhythm, but the ones that made it over here they've stripped all the magic out of it. So we have murder ballads, we have these, these grim stories, but in the British Isles, there's, there's a lot of magic. And there's a lot of magic in the Lotus Sutra. And that's, uh, that's what I think you're pointing to. So let's end there. We have one more class next week. I hope you're enjoying it. It'll be, uh, as I said, the, the parables are going to be uh, I think chapter 14 and 16, I believe. So we'll be in this second part of the Lotus Sutra that does not focusing on uh, skillful means. It's there, but anyway, let's close with the Bodhisattva vows. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. 
I vow to win them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.